Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 118 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Nir Eyal. Once called the prophet of habit-forming technology, Nir works at the intersection of psychology, technology and business and he's an expert in how to build positive habits and avoid negative ones. He's also the author of best-selling books Hooked and Indistractable and in the next hour you're going to learn why big tech companies and media outlets will never help you win back more of your time and why it's on each of us to take personal responsibility to do just that. The tools and techniques that you can use to win back your attention, find more focus and make better use of your time. The truth about what really causes distraction and how the pings, rings and dings of your smartphone are just 10% of the story. Why values, goals and time management will do more for your productivity than any exciting sounding fad or tool ever will and so much more. You'll probably be able to tell in this conversation as it gets started that I was really excited for this one. If you know me or if you've listened to this podcast, you know how much I enjoy talking about habits and productivity and getting more done with your time. And this conversation is all about that. Nir is an absolute expert in all of these subject matters. It's a conversation that I really enjoyed and it's one that I know that you're going to enjoy as well. Just two things before we get started. The first, I have to say thank you to David McIntosh of the Development by David podcast. David kindly put me in touch with Nir and he helped make this episode happen. So David, if you're listening, thank you. I appreciate you. And secondly, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. There are so many more great conversations just like this one coming your way in the near future. And if you hit subscribe, right now in the next couple of seconds it means you're not going to miss them so go and do it but in the meantime here it is episode number 118 of life and lessons with near al So Nireo, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Sean. So I'm really excited for today because if anybody has listened to this podcast before, they will know that it's basically a hobby of mine to try and remove distraction from my life, to try and be more productive and to just try and get more done, to do more meaningful work. Um, and so where I want to begin today is by asking you to set the context because I was born in 1995, a year that is widely considered there or thereabouts the rough kind of adoption date of the internet as we know it today. And so I feel like I've grown up in a world where I have always had distraction other than very fleeting moments in my young childhood when I remember the days before touch screen phones, I've always been distracted. But for you, there must have been a moment where you really realized something's changed. This is becoming a problem. When was that moment for you? Well, even though distraction feels like it's something new uh, and it's something that we oftentimes equate with the internet or our iPhones, it is nothing new. Uh, In fact, people have been struggling with distraction since time immemorial. Uh, Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about akrasia, the tendency that we have to do things against our better interests, 2,500 years before the internet. Uh, So it's something that I think we we oftentimes blame whatever's new for causing distraction. But the fact of the matter is, let me tell you, uh, I remember a world before the internet and people were just as distracted with television and before that radio and before that comic books and before that all kinds of stuff (laughs) that can distract you. Uh, And that's why Indistractable, my book, is is not just about technology. Technology is kind of the boogeyman uh, that we blame. And when I first approached this problem, I thought it was technology's fault. But the more I dove into the research behind why we get distracted, I found that the the truth is much more interesting and much more empowering than just blame your phone. And so this is interesting because I have been planning a conversation that I'm going to have shortly with Johan Hari. And of course, his new book, Stolen Focus, is all about the technology element of this. And it's a trap I fell into even before I started reading Johan's book. I blamed this purely on technology. And so reading your book, something that massively stood out almost as like the obvious elephant in the room is that distraction goes so much deeper than that. And it goes from right the way from planning through to the most um, benign notification that can pop up on your phone. So break down for me just briefly. What are the kind of buckets of distraction that we encounter in a day? 
Yeah. I wish you would have had Johan and me at the same time because uh, we are on uh, different ends of the spectrum in terms of this debate. Uh, I I love I would love to argue with him on this point. <laughs> and so he, he dedicated a whole section of the book to, uh, to one conversation that we had together. And uh, if you listen to the raw audio of the of the recording versus what he put in the book, um, I think you'll get a much better sense, which I'm happy to share with your audience today around, you know, I think the truth around uh, what, you know, he thinks basically his problem is capitalism. Uh, he thinks that capitalism's fault, uh, it's capitalism's fault uh, and responsibility to get us to stop using our devices, that uh, technology uh, facilitated by the profit motive is what sucks in your attention. And of course, my response is, and what else is new? <laughs> Does anybody not know that the job of every media company is to monetize your attention? I don't care if it's the New York Times or Fox News or CNN or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter. Every media company, books, <laughs> Harari's book, <laughs> is also in the media business. And he makes money if you spend time reading his book. Uh, and so what we tend to find is that people who, who argue this line uh, are people who expect these companies to solve the problem, that want the government to fix the problem. And I'm here to tell you that products will never be made to uh, solve this problem of, of engagement for you. Now, there's lots of other problems with social media that we can talk about. We can talk about, you know, is, is tech a monopoly? And do they cause, you know, um, uh, filter bubbles? There's all kinds of interesting debates you can have on whether social media is good, bad, or ugly. Uh, it's probably all three, the fact of the matter is. But when it comes to this problem of distraction, these companies will never make products not engaging. That is the point of these products, right? Like Netflix is not going to say, uh, you know, you're not going to complain to Netflix and say, hey, Netflix, make your, make your shows more boring, right? Like I, I like to watch them a lot. Well, of course you do. That's what they're designed to do. You, are we going to, hey, uh, Apple, your phone is way too user-friendly. Can you make it less user-friendly? Because I find myself checking it a lot. Uh, no, they're not going to do that. <laughs> That's the whole point of these products. We want them to be engaging. The price of progress, the price of living in this amazing age. I mean, how lucky are you to be, have been born in 1995 in an age where the first time in history you can have more abundance in information, in food, in entertainment than in any time of 200,000 years of human history. So the price of that progress, the price of all this abundance is to stop whining and start doing something about it. So an indistractable person realizes why they got distracted and they do something about it. Whereas a distractible person complains about, oh, I kept getting distracted again and again by the same things. How many times can we complain about Facebook? How many times can we complain about the television? How many times can we complain about these things before we say enough? I'm going to do something about it. So I'm not saying that this is your fault. Okay. You didn't invent the internet. Okay, you didn't invent uh, Snapchat or whatever apps you might find distracting you. You didn't invent those apps. They're not your fault but they are your responsibility. Because who else's responsibility could it be? Now, I'm not speaking about people who are pathologically addicted. There's a big difference between people who are actually addicted. And we like to toss around this word a lot that everything's addictive these days. Well, no, that's really disrespectful to people who actually have the pathology of addiction. But if you're not pathologically addicted, and if you're not a child, right? Child, children are protected uh, people. They're, they're a protected class of people. There's lots of things that children can't do. They can't drink. They can't smoke. They can't uh, gamble. There's lots of things that we protect children from. So I do believe children deserve special, special protection from technology, the certain bad aspects of technology. And I also believe that people who are pathologically addicted deserve protection from technology. And we can talk about how. But for the rest of us, if you're not pathologically addicted and you're not a child, this is something that you have to do something about. And the good news is it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> There's, it's, you know, uh, Harari talks about it and so many tech critics talk about how technology is hijacking our brains and it's addicting everybody, but they don't try the simple techniques that I talked about in Indistractable. You know, I don't know if you saw this movie, The Social Dilemma. Did you happen to see it? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So amazing fear mongering film that uh, I was interviewed for, for three hours. They interviewed me for three hours for this film and I'm not in it. Why am I not in it? Because they... That the filmmakers are using the exact same psychological tricks to make their point to get you scared, right? If you remember in the film, they have those, you know, they they have this imagery of uh, a, a, of a person turning into a voodoo doll and being spun around by these maniacal villainous algorithms that are making you do these things. 
This is an incredibly disempowering perspective. And the reason they didn't put me in the film is because it didn't jive with their narrative. It didn't resonate with the point they were trying to make in the film, which is you're powerless. But when we tell people that technology is hijacking their brains, which is an awful term, hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11. It is not some stupid app on your phone, for God's sakes. Get a grip, folks. We can do something about this unless, unless you believe what Harari and the tech critics are saying, which is that there's nothing you can do, right? You're hopeless. Your, your brain is hijacked. You're addicted. So what can you do? Nothing. So guess what people do? Zero. And that's exactly what the tech companies want. The tech companies want you to believe you're powerless. There's nothing you can do. And I'm here to tell you that is not true. There is so much you can do to become indistractable. Do you think that the, the narrative painted in documentaries such as The Social Dilemma is one which is more widely brought into by culture at large because it's nicer to hear it is the path of least resistance right do nothing because you can do nothing rather than there is a big struggle in front of you but you can take steps to because correct me if i'm wrong and i won't i won't sit on the johan hari point for too long but listening to both of your work that feels like the almost the only real difference between your wider opinion which is johan says this is a societal and a tech company issue whereas you your approach seems correct me if i'm wrong more empowering more personal responsibility more there are things you can do is not a silver bullet. However, here are the steps. Is that right? Yeah, and I appreciate you actually uh, finding the overlap. We both want the same thing, which is for people to take control over their time and attention. And in that respect, we're on very much on the same page. I I'm not a an apologist for the tech industry. I don't want you to use tech more if it's not in accordance with your values. I also want us to recognize there's a lot of great things that technology can do for us, right? Here we are talking via thousands of miles apart. Uh, you're in the UK, I'm in Singapore. We're talking over this technology for free, <laughs> putting it into people's ears for free. So this is an amazing technology that we should be very thankful for. So I, I, I do think that there's a lot of benefits that we should appreciate, but I'm not trying to advocate that that these products are good for everyone or that we should use them more. It's I'm What I'm advocating for is nuance is to realize that it's about who is using, how much they are using, what would they be doing instead of using, and how can we use these technologies in a way that maximize the benefit for us as opposed to us serving these technologies. So I think at the end of the day, we both want the same thing, which is people to be empowered by uh, by these technologies as opposed to feeling like they are uh, uh, using them mindlessly. We both want the same thing. His approach uh, and many tech critics' approach is to is to victimize, right? Because I, so I don't know if this has always been the case, but for certain now, there's a certain cachet to being a victim. There's a certain social rank that you gain by saying, I'm a victim. There's nothing I can do. This is being done to me. Uh, because there's there, it's a very easy position to take, right? Uh, you know, I, I, my life is the way it is because of aspects outside of my control. This is what we call an external locus of control. And it's incredibly toxic that we know that studies find that people who have an external locus of control, meaning the, my life is determined by things that happen outside of me versus people who have a more internal locus of control orientation, people who have an internal locus of control, who, people who believe that most things in my life happen because of things that I do, these people are healthier, they, uh, they're more successful, they have better relationships, they make more money. All these good things come from, from, from this mindset of believing that you have agency. So I think that this narrative that we are powerless to resist distraction is actively hurting people. So another interesting overlap that I want to uh, look at before we dive into the uh, some of the causes of distraction is your two books, right? Because you begin Indistractable by talking about how Hooked is almost a, a handbook, a Bible of sorts for those in big tech companies. You list a bunch of founders and CEOs who point to this book and say to their teams, you must read this, it's great. So to an extent, you're, you have pulled apart and understood the playbook of what we're up against, and then you've almost created yeah. the antidote. What are some of the biggest kind of hidden drivers that we as individuals are up against when it comes to... Um, offsetting the addictive ability, if not real addiction, the addictive ability of the apps and devices we use. Well, I, I would take issue with one, one small thing that you said, which is that it's an antidote. I wouldn't say it's an antidote. Uh, it's, it's a compliment that we can 
we can have our cake and eat it too when it comes to these technology products. So I wrote Hooked, my first book, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, so that we could steal the secrets of Silicon Valley to build good habits. And that's exactly what's happened. Kahoot, the world's largest educational software company, uses the Hooked model, uses the exact same techniques that Facebook and Instagram use to get kids hooked onto learning. Fitbod uses the hook model to get people hooked to exercise. So that's why it's it's so stupid to think that, oh, technology is melting our brain, the attention economy, blah, 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 blah all this silliness, when you know we have to think about specific instances. What exactly are, are we taking issue with? It's not the techniques. Don't we all want to be hooked to learning a new language, if that's our goal, or to exercising more, to saving money? It can't be the techniques. We want the techniques because we want to have good habits in our lives. So hooked is about how do you do that? right? I have yet to hear even one instance of someone using my book for ill. Like what, what is the negative repercussions? I haven't heard of even one case. What I have heard out of are thousands of companies who have used these techniques for good to help people exercise more, save money, connect with loved ones, learn, learn something new. That's really why I wrote Hooked. Now, Indistractable, if, if Hooked is about how do we build good habits with technology, Indistractable is about how do we break those bad habits around distraction. So it's it's really a compliment. And and to your point, I think I'm uniquely qualified to talk about uh, these techniques and why the techniques are good, but they're not that good, <laughs> right? Like I literally wrote the book on how companies get you hooked, and these techniques work, right? They are effective, but this is not mind control. I I literally know all their techniques. And again, they're good, but they're not that good. It's not something that anybody can't say, nope, I'm good. I don't want I don't want to use the product. <laughs> it's not it's not mind control. So something interesting in and literally as I heard this line, I was listening to the audiobook of yours on a drive between where I live and the office, which is like a four hour drive. And I heard you break down the difference between traction and distraction. And I had to yeah. pause the book. I had to phone my business partner. <laughs> and I'm like, this is the most mind blowing thing I've ever heard because and it might it might sound silly to you because it, it's so obvious once you know it. However, I had always and have always, I only listened to it a few weeks ago, but I've always had this feeling of I am being distracted. Um, mm. I feel like I'm I'm a bit lost. But until you pair that with traction, is is a task you're doing either taking you away from your goal or yeah. towards your goal? Let me, let me describe it. I'll, I'll, I'll set it up. And I, I'm so glad you appreciate it because actually this was an epiphany for me as well. And it took me, you know, I, I spent five years writing this book. Four of it was pure research to, to just get up to speed uh, because I've read so many books on distraction and focus and so much of them were not based on good science. So I just wanted to get up to speed in terms of what does the literature say? This isn't just, you know, some pet project of techniques that I use. There's 30 pages of citations to peer-reviewed studies in the book. So this is really based on, on hard science. And so one of the things that really blew my mind, um, one was this fact that distraction has been here for a very, very long time. And when I started, you know, under, I wanted to understand, well, what does this word even mean, right? Like I'm, I'm big into definitions and, and, and understanding what things really mean. So when you look at the origin of the word distraction, uh, you find something very interested embedded in that word, which is that the opposite of distraction, most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, but it's not. As you mentioned, the opposite of distraction is traction, right? We have traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And so, uh, and they both end, by the way, in the same six letters, action, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your intentions, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is really important because as you said, distraction, most people perceive distraction as something that happens to them. But action, reminding us at the end of the word, A-C-T-I-O-N, reminds us that traction and distraction, these are not things that happens, happen to us. These are actions we take. And I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is intent. So this is where I, I really take issue with people moralizing and medicalizing some behaviors versus others. And you know, you're 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 a pretty young guy, born in '95. You probably hear this all the time, where people say, you know, in the older generations, oh, you playing video games, that's a waste of time. But me watching football, that's okay. Why? What's the distinction? Just one pastime versus another. In fact, I, I'd much rather have people interacting with each other online. Uh, than you know, watching the boob tube mindlessly. So anything you want to do with your time is fine as long as you do it with intent. So one of the principles in the book is to turn distraction into traction by making time for it. 
So if you want to go online, there's nothing wrong with Facebook. There's nothing wrong with Snapchat or Instagram or any of these things. Whatever you want to do with your time is fine as long as you do it with intent, as long as it's planned for in advance. You're turning distraction into traction if it's on your calendar, if you're living your life according to your schedule and your values, not someone else's, certainly not the tech company's values. And conversely, anything can become distraction. So just like anything can become traction, anything can become distraction. So many times, things that we think are productive, right? I, I used to do this with email. I would get to work and I would sit down at my desk and I would, you know, take out my computer and say, okay, now I'm going to be productive. I'm going uh, to do that thing that I've been delaying on. I'm going to work on that big project, the thing I've been procrastinating on. Here I go. I'm going to get started. But first, let me check some email, right? First, let me, let me do that easy stuff on my to-do list just to get the ball rolling, just to get started, right? And I convinced myself that I was being productive because I was doing email. Email is productive work, right? I'm, I'm, I'm being productive. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous form of distraction. It's much more dangerous than social media or anything like that is the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the easy work and at, at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because it's a work-related task, it is still a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time. So anything can become traction or distraction based on your intention. So that's why I always say you know, we have to plan our time in advance. If you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. And this is simple stuff that tech critics don't think about and don't talk about. And it's one of the most uh, research-backed techniques out there. It's called time boxing. And it's just a matter of planning out what you're going to do with your time in advance. Because uh, you, know, it, it, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So when people say they got distracted, my first question is, well, what was on your calendar? What did you plan to do with your time? And plan what you plan to do with your time could be video games. It could be watching Netflix. It could be hanging out with your mates. It could be doing anything you want to do. But you've got to plan that time in advance because if you have a big white open calendar with nothing planned on it, everything's a distraction. <laughs> and you're going to fill it with something you later regret. So I had Rick Pastor on back in January, he's the author of a book called Grip, which is essentially a time blocking methodology for calendars. And now he's working on a calendar startup. So he really got me into this. He he shifted that paradigm of mind that I need to live by a calendar. Um, and listeners will, of course, know his methodology and how he goes about planning his day. But if somebody's new, if they've just landed on this episode, they they use their calendar to book their dentist appointment. And other than that is kind of empty. Yeah. How does somebody get started with blocking out both free time and work time to make sure that they always have that really important intention? Sure. Um, so, so I'll tell you how to do that real quick, but well, that's actually step number two to become indistractable. We did skip, skip step number one, which I'll get back to in a second. But basically, you know, it's really about making time for traction. How do you do that? How do you make time for traction? You turn your values into time. You turn your values into time. What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And I give people these three life domains that they can use to decide how they want to spend their time, starting with you. You are at the center of these three life domains. If you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of other people, you can't make the world a better place. You've got to take care of yourself first. Well, what does that include? It includes time for rest. It includes time for exercise, if that's one of your values. I'm not saying it should be, but if it is, where is it on your calendar to exercise, to, to take a walk, to, to do something for yourself, to read, to meditate, to pray, whatever it is you want to do, to play video games, whatever it is you want to do for yourself, put that on your calendar first. Then relationships. Part of the reason we have a loneliness epidemic in the industrialized world is that people don't keep those regular uh, occasions to be with people that are important to them. They give their mates, their spouse, their kids, whatever scraps of time are left over, and they make this mistake of not planning time for their relationships. It's very, very important. Finally, your work. And what most people do is they, they live their lives doing what we call reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meetings, reacting to things in their work environment. As opposed to what high performers do versus low performers, low performers, they react to things all day. High performers do at least some amount of what's called reflective work. They make time in their day for planning, strategizing, thinking, for God's sakes, can only be done without distraction. So it doesn't mean your entire day needs to be spent doing reflective work. But what we find is that low performers spend no time doing reflective work. 
High performers make at least some time in their day. It can be 30 minutes, 40 minutes, doesn't matter. They make time in their day to work without distraction. So that's absolutely critical. Put that in your calendar. So that's how you'd fill out your, your calendar. And I show you all kinds of techniques. You know, there's common questions like, well, what if my boss needs me? What am I going to do? I tell you exactly what to do. There's, there's a technique called schedule syncing that we get into that's a, a game changer. But let me just very quickly talk about the first step. We skip to the second step. The first step, and I would argue the most important step to becoming indistractable, is around mastering the internal triggers. So we talked about traction and distraction. We didn't talk about what prompts us to take these actions. There are two kinds of triggers. External triggers, these are things in our outside environment, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead to traction or distraction. Studies find this only accounts for 10% of the time we get distracted. So for as bad as technology is, right, for, uh, supposedly, it only accounts for 10% of the time that we get distracted. You know that is, 10, is because of these pings and dings, these external triggers. So what, what's the other 90%? Studies have found that 90% of the time we get distracted, we get distracted because of what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. These are feelings that are the cause of 90% of our distractions. So this is the most important thing that people can take away when it comes to, if you find that you're, you're not focused as much on the things you want to focus on as you could be, if you're not eating the way you want to eat, if you're not exercising when you say you will, if you're not fully present with people, if you're not finishing things that you want to do professionally, 90% of the reason is because of feelings. And people don't want to talk about this, right? We would love to blame a technology. But 90% of our, and I promise you, if you get rid of your technology with something I did, because I wanted to test this hypothesis, oh, everybody says it's a technology, so I got rid of the technology. And I still got distracted because I still had these emotions. I still had these uncomfortable emotional states. So I would find something to fill that hole and, and, and provide distraction from one thing or another because distraction is not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. It's something that most people, myself included, I hadn't learned how to deal with discomfort because this is one of the most important mantras of the book. Time management is pain management. Time management is pain management. All human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort. By the way, you could add money management is pain management. Weight management is pain management. It's all about our ability to control these uncomfortable emotional states. If you can master these internal triggers, that's how we make sure that they don't become our masters. So I know that you have a, correct me if I'm wrong, you have a worksheet for understanding internal triggers. I haven't yet tried that. However, since listening to the book, I've been trying to catch myself on moments immediately after I realize I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. And mm -hmm. a big revelation in my mind, speaking about discomfort and pain management, is the idea that almost, and I don't know what this says about me, but almost immediately after I feel slightly discontent about something I'm doing, whether it's because yes. I'm struggling to write a piece, whether it's because I don't truly believe in the end goal of something I'm working on, because we have a bunch of clients, something's a high priority, something's yeah. a low. This, the second that goes off in my mind, I've noticed everything unravels. I, I will reach for the phone, I'll switch the tab, I'll look at this thing, I'll have a conversation. And this is something that I really ought to have not skipped over actually, because it's something I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of until reading your work, which is that I would blame the phone that I pick up, right? It was the phone's fault because I picked it up. But no, that something caused me to pick up the phone. And that that really shifted my paradigm on this whole thing. That's right. And it's... uh. It, it, it's super freaking annoying <laughs> because, because you realize you're doing it to yourself. But this is the truth, right? People, I would love to tell you it's somebody else's responsibility. You know, the New York Times or the, the Facebook or your boss or your kids, nobody's going to tell you you've had enough. Nobody's going to tell you not to get distracted. You're, you're, if, you, if you reach for these things to take your mind off of these uncomfortable emotional states, they're going to be there in one form or another. How much of controlling our internal triggers, or at least what happens immediately after them, can be countered with environment design? Because something else that was really interesting in the book, not to ping pong around too much, is, and you'll, I'm sure, firm up the details here, but you, you dropped a stat about the, the difference in your ability to focus, even when things like your phone is present. So your phone doesn't need to ping, your phone doesn't need to vibrate. The, the mere fact that it's there is playing into this. How much of what we get distracted by can be controlled by environment yeah i mean it's i don't think it's necessarily anything unique about the phone i think the study 
uh, or when you read the study, it's easy to say, oh, you know, don't have your phone around because that's what, you know, just by the mere presence, it's going to distract you. Well, I would argue if you had a magazine there, it would distract you. If you had, uh, you know, a tic-tac-toe, a Sudoku puzzle, it would distract you if you are looking for distraction. If you're working on something that's, okay, so I write every day. Writing is freaking hard, okay? It's hard work, right? Uh, just this morning I was writing and, and I wasn't working out and I, my ideas weren't coalescing and I, 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 I just, it wasn't working out. And so what did I want to do? I wanted so badly just to go do something else, anything else. And if there was anything within reach, I would have probably picked it up and gotten distracted by it. So it's never about the objects, right? It's never the television or the, uh, the uh, Netflix or your phone or whatever. It's about the feeling you are trying to escape. So what you have to do is to have tools at your disposal. You have to have uh, uh, arrows in your quiver ready to go so that when you feel these internal triggers, you know what to do with that sensation. And there's all kinds of techniques that I talk about. There's over a dozen different techniques that you can use. And you know, you, people can try them out and see what works for them. There's, there's a few that, that I use every single day that are incredibly effective at helping you manage those internal triggers. Because the more you habituate yourself, and this is why people do tend to blame their, their devices, because your brain is looking for the path of least resistance. We know that our brains are cognitive misers. So whatever will provide relief as quickly as possible to that discomfort of boredom, of uh, you know uncertainty, of stress, anxiety, whatever provides relief, whatever will take my mind off that discomfort fastest, that's what I'm going to look for. So for some people, it's take a drink, right? For some people, it's turn on the television. For some people, it's scroll social media. Whatever you habitually repeat, that's what the brain's going to turn to. So we've got to break that bad habit of looking for relief from that distraction or from that internal trigger with a distraction and rather focus it on traction. Of the 12 rules, what are the, the two or three that you reach for most often? For example, this morning when you were struggling with that piece, what, what, what brought you back to yeah. that flow and that traction? Sure. So, so one of the things is to realize that, that it, this is supposed to be difficult. I think the, the self-help community has done us a disservice in that we have this idea that things are supposed to be easy, right? Like I, I study habits for a living and I think we've kind of reached peak habits that people think that, you know, I can turn a habit, anything into a habit. I want to turn it, I want a writing habit. I want an exercise habit. No, <laughs> you don't understand habits. Habits are defined as behaviors done with little or no conscious thought. So you, I don't know how to write with little or no conscious thought. Meditation, that's another one. Oh, I want to get into a meditation habit. Well, if you're meditating with little or no conscious thought, you're sleeping. You're not doing it right. You're supposed to be fully present. You have to be consciously aware of what's going on while you're meditating or you're doing it wrong. Uh, exercise. If you Maybe if you take a walk and you can let your brain you know, go wherever it wants, maybe that's done with little or no conscious thought. But if you're in the gym and you're trying to get stronger or faster or better, that requires exertion. That requires effort. So the, the first thing you need to do is to realize that when you feel these internal triggers, accept them and realize that means you're doing something right. Don't try and escape them because when people think about habits, what they're really saying is when they say, oh, I want an exercise habit or I want a writing habit, they, what they're really saying is, I don't want to actually do that thing. I want to have done that thing. I want to have written my novel. I want to have exercised, right? I want to have meditated because I don't really like it. So I want to turn it into a habit so I don't have to actually do it. But of course, that's totally unrealistic, right? So, and, and the problem is that, you know, 30 days, 40 days, 60 days after they start uh, this new habit, they, people find, hey, this is still hard, right? It's still not easy. And so what do they do? Do they blame the author that gave them this, this bad advice? No, they blame themselves. They think there's something wrong with them. And so they quit. When there's nothing wrong with them, there's something wrong with this stupid technique. So the first most important thing is to realize that that that, that discomfort is great, right? Accept that discomfort, embrace that discomfort, realize that's what makes this skill special. If it's hard, it means other people won't do it. So we have to use that discomfort as rocket fuel to propel us towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction. Now, a very practical technique that I use almost every single day is called the 10-minute rule. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction in 10 minutes. Okay, not for 10 minutes. Make sure you listen carefully here. Not for 10 minutes. No, no, no. In 10 minutes. So what I do when I'm writing and man, all I want to do is, you know, check email or Google this one thing or do something that I know is a distraction because I really just need to focus on my writing. What I will do oftentimes is to, is to take a breath, 
set a, a timer here. I'll, I'll tell my phone, set a timer for 10 minutes. And my job is to do what's called surf the urge, is to just feel that sensation for just a few seconds, right? And I tell myself, I can give into that distraction. I can go, you know, Google something, or if I, you know, if I'm trying to uh, lose weight, I can give into that chocolate cake, or if you're trying to quit smoking, you can, you know, smoke that cigarette in 10 minutes when that timer is, is, is up. And what you will find is if you just sit with that sensation, now don't go do something else, right? Just sit with that sensation, surf the urge. And I tell you about this dialogue that you can have with yourself of what you do while you're surfing that urge. And if you acknowledge that these uncomfortable sensations are like waves, right? They don't last forever. They feel like they're going to last forever, but they never do. And if you can ride that sensation like a surfer on a surfboard, what you will find is that nine times out of 10, by the time those 10 minutes are up, you'll be back at work doing the thing you originally wanted to do. And if after those 10 minutes of just contemplation, of just surfing that urge, you want to give in to that distraction, fine. But what's going to happen over time is that you're going to prove to yourself, hey, wait a minute, I am able to resist this for 10 minutes, right? That these things don't have power and control over me. Look, I did it for 10 minutes. And then the 10-minute rule becomes the 12-minute rule. It becomes the 15-minute rule. And this is how you're increasing your agency, your capacity to be indistractable. What does the science say about this? Because it's really interesting that there is a parallel almost with um, mindful meditation and almost observing a thought, right? That you can feel an urge to distract yourself. You can feel an urge to relieve that pain that we spoke about. Um, and yet, nine times out of 10 in my minimal experience in trying this for a few weeks, the moment you acknowledge that urge and just stare at it with your brain, it disappears. How, how Do you know the the science of what's actually happening there because it's such a bizarre it almost sounds unbelievable until you try it i think is what i'm trying to say it's true it's true but but it's it's something that i think very few people have had practice with and it is an incredible power if you can catch yourself in, in all aspects of life right how many times have we been in an argument with someone and we blurt out something that we later regret because we felt like it right because it would feel good to say something that you know hurt them uh, or how many times have we eaten something that we later regret that we knew wasn't helpful, uh, healthy for us or drank more than we should have or, uh, you know, whatever the case might be, that if there's one mantra that this book has taught me, writing this book has taught me, is that, uh, that, that, that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That all of these problems of distraction, again, it's not a moral failing. There's nothing wrong with you. It's simply an impulse control issue. All these things. And this is why it's a skill of the century because look, the world is only going to become more distracting, right? It's not going to go the other way. There's going to be more interesting things to do with your time and your attention. So it behooves us. We have to understand that if we can control these impulses, we control our life. If we don't control our impulses, well then, you know, you, you, we all know what people who have low impulse control make of their lives. These are the people who live in regret. They do things that feel good in the second, but then later on, they later look back and regret. So we want to make sure that we we don't become one of those folks, that we build this skill of being able to interrupt that that impulse and being able to just give a moment of reflection. Sometimes that's all it takes. And just giving that pause. You know, I've struggled with my weight. Today, I'm, I'm 44 years old and I'm in the best shape of my life, but I used to be clinically obese. And what I always struggled with was that impulse to, oh, I just want that chocolate cake real quick. I just want that bite of something that I know I shouldn't have if I'm on a diet. And it's the same when it comes to all sorts of distraction, whether it's you know how we spend money uh, one way or the other, how we spend our time, how we spend our attention. If you can insert just that moment to catch yourself, to, to process that sensation, you realize you don't really need the thing you desire. What you need is to be able to control that sensation, that emotion. What I find interesting about this is that I, I find parallels between what you're saying and Jocko Willink's discipline equals freedom. Is that what he calls it? I haven't read that in a yeah. few years. Um, essentially, the idea that the only way you get freedom, the only way you get to this promised land is by putting in the work and doing the difficult thing. But what's perhaps more empowering, and this maybe goes back to the beginning of our conversation, what's perhaps more empowering about the way you explain it, and I think this would be useful to listeners, is Jocko is a big navy seal who describes things in the ways a big navy seal would describe it. it's like just do the work la 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 yeah. you're saying that actually you can slowly gradually teach yourself that discipline it's a it's a slow process that can be done by anybody is that right 
That's exactly right. And and I I mean he's revealed I think a lot of of truths uh that it, that that really appeal to a certain audience, but I, I agree with a lot of what he says. Uh but I, you're you're absolutely right. I mean you know, I, there's many ways to look at this uh there's many ways to skin a cat, but I think philosophically he's you know this it's not just me who agrees with him, the, the science agrees with him that the more you can establish your sense of agency, the the sense that you can affect your life, that what you do matters. Uh, the better off your life will be, as opposed to resigning to, meh, you know, what can I do? There's no, you know, that 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 uh, my emotions, my environment, my my life is controlled by things outside myself. So that's what that's what that's the message that I think he's preaching, and I am as well. Now I, I will tell you that you can do this in incremental steps. So I'm not saying plan out, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day of your life uh, to be indistractable. I'm saying, how about we start with an afternoon? Right? What would an, uh, a weekend afternoon look like? Uh, so, and and I'm talking about you know big swaths of time. For example, uh, every weekend I spend time with my daughter. Now, for that time, we call it planned spontaneity. It sounds like an oxymoron. Planned spontaneity. Now, why why do we do that? I plan time with my daughter to be spontaneous. I don't know what I'm going to do with her. We might go to the park. We might go fly a kite. We might go get some ice cream. I don't know what I'm going to do with her, but I plan that time so that I know what I will not be doing. I will not be checking my phone. I will not be looking at email. I will not be answering business phone calls. I will just be with my daughter because she's someone who deserves my time and attention. So even starting with an afternoon, asking yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their weekend? Just try that as an exercise and see what an amazing weekend you can have. You know, I, when, before I was indistractable, on the, when, if I had a free day on a weekend, I'd fail. Oh, I'm going to get so much done, right? Look, I've got a big open day. I've got no commitments. I'm going to get so much done. And of course, those were my least productive days, right? <laughs> those are the days that I spent doing this and that. I never really got around to the things I said I was going to do. So planning the time, even if it's you know, 20, 30 minutes uh, chunks of, of your day, planning out what would be the ideal weekend for you to live according to your values. Now, that doesn't mean you need to have a, a spa day all day if that's according to your values, great. But it could include things like, you know, paying bills or doing the dishes or cleaning the house, or, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourself, to take care of your relationships, to take care of your work for what that ideal uh, day might look like. And then, of course, you can expand from there, from planning one day a week to the weekend to maybe the entire week, the work week. So you can do this incrementally. So... In the last 10 minutes or so, I want to focus on if we can get through free, free of these external triggers, which now that we've established sure. that although most of the work isn't actually done on this half, I feel like lots of people attribute the issue of their distraction to these things. And so it'd be interesting just to hear a couple of your uh, kind of best pieces of advice of how to offset the distractions of these free things. And the first one is the big one. Everyone's going to know what I'm going to say is social media, right? How can people train themselves to be less distracted by social media? Yeah, yeah. So the first step is, of course, to master the internal triggers, to ask yourself why you are checking social media. What's the reason behind it? Not not the functional reason, but the emotional reason. And for most people, it's boredom, right? I don't know what to do with my time and my brain and my hands. What do I do? And the last generation, you know, the, the last generation scolds us for being on our phone so much. You know what they did? They smoked. That's what they did with their hands. <laughs> now we've got these empty hands. We need to fill them with something. We check our phone. We need something to do with our time and attention because we're bored. They smoked. Well, I would rather have people checking their phones than smoking, but maybe we can go to the next uh, evolutionary step and actually ask ourselves, wait a minute, what am I getting out of this, right? What, what, what emotional itch am I scratching? And then, uh, you know, once we understand that, uh, and then step two is planning what you want to do at that time. So don't just say, I don't want to check social media so much. That's not very helpful. What does that mean? That's too squishy. Instead, plan what you want to do instead with your time. So it, checking social media is not a distraction unless it distracted you from something you plan to do. So plan that time, including plan time for social media, right? So on my calendar, there is time set to check social media. I love social media. It's great. It connects me to people. It's very interesting. I have, you know, I learn from it. It's wonderful but it's on my schedule. It's not something I do just because I don't know what else to do with my time and attention in my hands. I plan time for it. So that's step number two. Step number three is hack back the external triggers. So this is the kindergarten stuff that a lot of people, you know, you can read all kinds of lists of, of you know, uh, turn off notifications. Like seriously, I, <laughs> you know, believe it or not, two thirds of people with a smartphone, as, as mind controlling as these terrible technologies are, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. What? 
Why do we need every ping and ding on, on social media? Turn off the stupid freaking notifications if they're not serving you so that you're only using it uh, when, when it's you know something that can actually interrupt you during, your, during a conversation. You can turn off those external triggers. Everybody's phone comes with these settings that you can very easily hack back. So that's why I say hack back because they're not just hacking us. We can hack back the devices. And then finally, the fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with packs. Now, packs are what we do as the final uh, 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 fail-safe, the firewall against distraction, if you will. So after you've done the other three steps, mastered internal triggers, made time for traction, hack back the external triggers, you can take steps to, to prevent getting distracted. So what, what, do, you, what do you do? Uh, for example, when I'm writing, okay, and I don't want to check social media, but I'm afraid I might be tempted, I use this wonderful app called Forest. And Forest is, is this app you open up, you dial in how much time you want to do focused work for. And if you pick up your phone and you do anything with it, this cute little virtual tree on the screen dies. And so it's enough of a reminder to tell you, nope, that's not what you want to do with your time. Put your phone down so that as a last line of defense. Or another thing I do is um, there's a company that I like so much I invested in called Focusmate. So when I need to do focused work, I, I go on to Focusmate. You're matched with somebody else who needs to do also some, some, some reflective work. And you work together. Now, you don't talk during the session, but it's just an accountability buddy to keep you on task. So that's the last line of defense. But if you use these four tactics together, I'm telling you, there's no distraction you can't overcome. And that's just one example of using social media. And, and I, I, I dare every, anyone to try these four techniques and tell me they can't overcome social media. I bet you can. Just as a brief tangent, as somebody who has sat inside of the world you sit in for so long and uses Twitter. Do you think that the the social media landscape or even Twitter as a product will change under the potential new ownership of Elon Musk? Oh, that's a good question. So this is all fresh. It just happened uh, the past day or two. I, I'll tell you what, I am really disappointed that Elon is is buying Twitter if it goes through. I'm, you know, Who knows if it'll actually go through, uh, but not for the reason that most people think. I just think it's not worth his time. I think Elon may be getting distracted by Twitter by buying it. Like, I want him to keep working on getting us to Mars. I want him to keep working on electrifying cars. I, I What is he doing spending time on Twitter? It doesn't matter. Like, so few people actually use Twitter. Uh, it's it's all, like, nerds, <laughs> for lack of a better term. It's journalists who are super nerdy, arguing with each other. It's not real life. It's not real people. Uh, it's it, uh, All of Twitter is a big echo chamber of, of nerds. <laughs> so I just don't think it's worth his time. And I mean nerds like people who are overly obsessed with stuff. And you can be a nerd in all kinds of things. Not that being a nerd is a bad thing, but it's a place for people to geek out on on very niche topics. I, I just don't think it's as important as, uh, as, as, as is worthy of, of someone as capable as Elon. So I'm a little disappointed that he's not staying focused. <laughs> That's such an interesting take that he has made a $44 billion distraction. It is not moving him Good towards name. his previously stated goals of, you know, electrifying cars and all these things. That's super interesting. Um, yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is just, you know, my my hot take here. Like, I wonder, is is it, hey, uh, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. He owns a media company. Do I need a media? Like, what? why? What's... He's not defending free speech. Like this is not, you know, it's 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 a really thorny issue. Like there's a there's a goalpost to getting to Mars. So like if we get to Mars, the, if it's possible, you just gotta like connect the dots to get us there, right? It's it's you versus the laws of physics. And and there's a if there is a path, you gotta find it, right? It's binary. With Twitter, if he if if, if he works like crazy, uh, and figures it out, he's still going to make half the users incredibly angry like there's no scenario where everybody's happy with with because it's a th because people are involved right it's about emotions it's about values it's about uh perspectives that it's it's never you know a cut and dry thing so uh, i don't know <laughs> i wish him luck <laughs> so twitter is good at delivering news and you indirectly a few months ago although you would never know you changed my entire view on how to consume news i was listening to a piece of yours on curio which ironically is an app i downloaded to try and consume the news less and then you spoke about the idea of um buying a physical newspaper i think and i was driving home yeah. from the gym one morning um and I kind of thought, I'll give this a go, but I didn't really. And then the, the conflict in Ukraine kicked off. And I, I can't tell you why. There was something going on in my brain that just made me check the news so, so, so much to the point where I thought I need to go cold turkey. I consume no digital yeah. news. 
uncertainty, right? That's the internal trigger is exactly is exactly this uncertainty about the state of the world. It's it's scary. So now you got fear plus uncertainty. That is the newspaper. That is the 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 the, the media's business model right there. <laughs> but sorry, continue. I interrupted you. So basically, all I did is once a weekend. Now I buy a physical newspaper. I buy a weekend newspaper that sits fairly center because I've always dismissed tabloid media in the UK as being very political. So I try and find something that's fairly centralist. Um, and it's unbelievable just how much of a change that has had on my focus more generally because I'm not habitually checking the BBC News website every four minutes to see if Russia has made some nuclear threat towards another country, right? Um, yeah. What kind of tools short of just cutting off the news completely can people use to um, avoid checking the news so much? Yeah, I, that, that's brilliant. I mean, I, I love that you did that. And guess what? You're not missing anything. Like nobody's calling you and saying, Sean, what, what should we do in the Ukraine? <laughs> like you're not getting those. You don't need to stay up to date every day on every little movement. Uh, you know, what, what, but of course, people feel like they need to. But really, it's because we love the melodrama. Right. It's just a soap opera. And of course, the media perpetuates that soap opera. Is this the most important thing in your life? Like, no, it's not. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, this is entertaining. I like to watch television. I like to watch the news. But realize that that's what it's for. It's not, oh, I need to be a concerned citizen. I need to stay up to date. That's BS that the media feeds you. You don't need that much information. Once a week, catching up on the world's events makes you a very well-informed citizen, maybe even a more uh, well-informed citizen than reading every day because now you have the, the perspective, right? You're reading the opinion columns that analyze what happened in the past week. I think that's terrific. So so bravo. That's a great use of an old technology that's better than I think a, a, a modern technology. So great. W once a week paper is a great a great uh, hack. Uh, if, you, if you want a tool that I, I use uh, every day is a tool called Pocket. And Pocket is this free app uh, that uh, you use on your phone and on your browser. So I have a rule that whenever I see a news story or, you know, I, I write, so I love to read, uh, you know, I constantly read various articles, um, uh, but I never read them on my desktop. And the reason I never read them on, on my desktop is because I know these media companies' business model is to suck you in with what they call clickbait, right? It's this bait to keep you clicking and clicking and clicking. I mean, they don't, they don't care how much time you spend on their website. They want more of it. So to 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 remedy that, Whenever I see an article online in any publication, I never read it on my desktop. I save it to Pocket. So it's this Chrome extension. I'm looking at it right now on my, on my screen. You click that Chrome extension, and the text is, 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 uh, is, is taken out and put on your phone free of any links, free of any ads, free of any potential distractions, where you can read the, the article on your phone. Now, where it really gets cool is that I use that as a reward for something I don't really love to do, which is to exercise. <laughs> so if I'm on a walk, if I'm in the gym, uh, if I'm doing some kind of exercise, I will use the Pocket app. They have this wonderful text-to-speech feature where it will actually read the article to you in this very nice uh, you know, Siri-like voice. It'll read it to you. And that becomes my reward for, for physical exercise. So not only do I not waste time reading these articles online, it becomes the incentive to get out and do something healthy for myself. Just one quick reflection. I know that you have to go in about five minutes. One quick reflection on the news. There was a secondary effect of what you indirectly taught me, just to reflect on your first point, is that it's unbelievable how much changes when you read the news once per week, if that makes sense. Like mm. the stories that were on page one or on page 17. And that made me realize maybe I'm a little bit too disconnected now, but that made me realize that almost nothing in the news matters, right? If, if something in the space of a week, if you're not checking it every four minutes, can be demoted by 16 pages, it has fallen off of the news agenda. It just made me realize that maybe the news isn't all that important after all. But the one last thing I want to ask you about whilst you're here is email, because email distracts all of us so much. And something I learned reading your book is that I don't even think we realize it. We feel productive when we're emailing. We feel like we're doing work. Um, I really like mm -hmm. your your overall view on email, but then the whole playing tag thing, right? Only opening an email twice, knowing when to deal with it. Uh, in the time we have remaining, can you just quickly run me through some of the uh, the methods for dealing with email more effectively sure. and not using it as a distraction? Yes, yes. So email is one of these things we think we're being productive. Uh, we think we're we, you know we're not getting distracted from, but actually I think it's one of the worst forms of distraction. By the way, it's not something that anybody mentions very often, right? We blame social media for distracting us, but who's talking about email? Email's boring, right? It's an old technology. But I think it's actually probably one of the most distracting technologies out there. Why? Because when I don't know what to do next, 
or when I'm working on a project and it's hard, I don't really feel like doing it right now, check email, right? It always becomes a default when, I don't, when I'm trying to escape some kind of feeling um, that, that I don't want to feel. So wh what do we do instead? First of all, we schedule the time when we check email. We don't check email when we can't think of anything else to do or when we're bored on a project. We schedule the time for the email. Now, how often you schedule that, that's up to you. I know some people who schedule it every hour on the hour. Some people, they do it once a day. So you decide how often you need it for your job, but put it on your schedule. Don't do it when you feel like it. Use it when you schedule it, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is when you do check your email, you wanna make sure you only touch it twice. The first time you open that email, you're going to ask yourself one question, which is not what's in the email, but the most important question from a time management perspective is when does it need a reply? When does it need a reply? Now, there's a few answers to that. Number one is never, okay? Many emails, there's spam. You never, you know, just archive them or delete them. You never need to see them again. Number two is emails that need a reply sometime uh, this week, okay? Something that needs to be replied to sometime this week. Number three is emails that need to reply today, okay? Now, most people don't categorize that way. They just reply to whatever comes in and whatever's the top of their email inbox, that's what they get to. But where they waste time is not the checking, but the rechecking. So you know what this looks like. Open an email, read it, put it away. Then 20 minutes later, what does that email say again? Oh, open it, read it, put it away. And we studies find that people do this six, seven, eight times per email. It's a huge waste of time. So instead, you only check e each email twice. You only touch it twice. The first time you sort it into one of these, these categories through a label. If you don't know how to use labeling, you know, just Google it. You, every email service provider does this. And then what you're going to do is only answer the emails that need a reply today. Okay, that's going to be statistically around 20% of your emails. 20% of your emails you actually need to reply to today. And you put time on your calendar just to reply to those. Now, where do you save time? Why is this technique going to save you any, any, any time? Why is it going to prevent distraction? Here's how. That 80% of emails that didn't need a reply today, that need a reply sometime this week, when you make time to reply to them later, okay, so for me, it's on Mondays. I have time in my calendar, three-hour block, I call message Mondays, okay? That's when I go through all that 80% that of emails that I set aside. But where is the time saving? Here's where the magic happens. When you let emails just sit for a while, when you let them marinate, what you will find is that 50%, half of those emails will no longer need a reply at all. But most people, what they do, they get an email, they reply to an email. I call this email ping pong. Get it, reply, get it, reply, get it, reply. And so if you want to get fewer emails in a period of time, you have to send fewer emails in a given period of time. So don't reply to emails that don't need a reply right now. Wait. And what you will find is that half of those emails People will figure out other things that are more important. Uh, they'll figure out their problems themselves. They'll take care of it. 50% of those emails will just disappear. So then you leave that time to flush through all those emails that, that do need a reply on one day every week or maybe you have an extended time period. So that little technique can save you between 50 to 90% of the time you spend on email. Amazing. Nir, I know that you need to go in a moment. Thank you so much for this. I've learned a lot. I'm sure those listening have also learned a lot. I'm going to make sure a link to your website and the books is in the show notes. But if people want to go elsewhere to find your stuff, where can they head? Sure. Yeah. So my website is nearandfar.com. Nir is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R-and-far.com. And if you go to indistractable.com, uh, that there you can find a workbook, actually, that anyone can get access to. You don't even have to buy the book. Uh, that can start you on your journey to becoming indistractable. So that's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. My pleasure. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 